Okay, all right. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's pray. And Lord, we, we just want to say to you that, that this book is our authority on all matters of faith and conduct. And, and sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes things are easy to understand. Sometimes things are harder. But, but our desire is to kind of meet you in the pages of this book and to hear your heart and to come to know you through this book. And so as we open up your word together today, we pray that by your spirit, you would reveal yourself to us. Amen. Amen. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. There you go. There is nothing like a kind of cutting-edge contemporary cultural re uh, reference, is there? And that is nothing like a contemporary cultural relevance. Anyway, put that on the back burner. We'll come back to that later on. Despite my fun-loving persona, jovial, you know, uh, um, you know, generally fun guy, um, I studied uh, maths, physics, and chemistry at A-level, and I liked it. And uh, so... So there are parts of my job that kind of appeal to that geeky side of me that no other parts of my job really do. And one of them is the preaching rota. So we, you know, the preaching rota, we have 11 weekend services in seven different places, and I'm responsible for figuring out who goes where and when and trying not to make anyone need to be on, omnipresent to make that work. And, and I just love it. I just love it. And, and so I've been asking myself for the last few weeks, why on earth, given the fact that I decide who preaches where and on what passage, why the heck did I give myself the passage that we're going to look at today when I could have given it to somebody else? And uh, you're about to see why. So, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Let's read together. Well, I'll read and you can listen. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. You listen, Taryn? Just, did you get that last bit there? Every, everything, that word was. Uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the glorious, beautiful word of the Lord. Okay. So before we um, crack open this passage, let me just make one or two general comments. The first thing is, as a preacher, 
in the same way as, you know, when you open up your Bible at home, which hopefully you do, and, and you, uh, you, you come across a particular passage, you're not sure what to do with it, you've kind of got two options. I've got two options today. One of them is to um, just find the things that are easy to understand and easy to apply and just take those and feed off those. And we could easily have done that today. The other option is that, you know, you dig out the commentaries and you have a really good study and you try and figure out what the deeper stuff really means. And, and that's what we're going to do today. And so if you're visiting today and you're thinking, I wonder what this church is usually like. In some senses, this is not what it's usually like. Normally there are more jokes and um, it's just a little bit more lighthearted and the talk isn't quite as long and um, it's not quite as dense. But, the, but today, we, you know, just because we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, we've come to this passage. It just feels like the right thing to do to crack it open. And so if you're visiting, what you really need to do is come next week where uh, you'll get a much better idea about how it all um, usually works. The second thing is, if you've got a switch in your own heart that has got a little label next to it that says, extend extra grace, then now is the moment to just throw that switch, you know, extend extra grace um, for a number of reasons. Firstly, it may just be that you are single and um, you've come here to church. What you weren't thinking when you woke up this morning was, I really hope that we spend the whole morning looking at the intricate inside workings of marriage. Uh, if that's you, then just flick the switch, extend extra grace. And then when we come to a part in the Bible, which is about singleness, um, then we'll preach the heck out of that as well. And then hopefully it'll all kind of balance itself out. But also, it may be that you're married and you and your spouse have approached this passage in a particular way and you've interpreted it in the way that has felt appropriate to you. And, you know, you operate your marriage under God in the way that you've understood it. Um, uh, if, I, if I interpret this passage in a different way today, then just flick the switch, extend extra grace. And, and then I suppose your responsibility then is to go away from today, have a discussion with your spouse, figure out whether anything needs to change uh, or, or maybe not, and, and, and then come to a place of peace and then move on. Uh, and I'm just going to recommend, you know, in a, or suggest in a sense my interpretation, and I hope that's okay. So with all of that said, let me just tell you how I'm going to approach this passage. First of all, we're going to look at it from um, looking at the historical context. So what was marriage like 2,000 years ago in uh, the Middle East? And, ha and how, how does that help us to understand what Paul originally meant? Uh, secondly, we're going to look at the wider biblical context. So uh, what does the whole Bible say about marriage? And how does that help us to understand what Paul means here? Um, thirdly, we're going to look at the closer biblical context. So uh, how does what we read out fit into the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and, and you know, the flow of what he's trying to say in the whole letter? And then lastly, we're going to look at the linguistic context, which is what do the words actually mean? Um, you know, somebody who was reading this 2,000 years ago, what would they have understood by it? Okay, so first of all, the historical context. What we need to understand before we approach this passage in one sense is that marriage in the Middle East 2,000 years ago was profoundly patriarchal. In other words, the men had all of the power. And that's in Greco-Roman culture and that's also in Hebraic culture. The men had all the power. So a marriage came about when the men decided it would happen, right? So that the father of the groom approaches the father of the bride and they kind of open negotiations 
and then after a little while they might involve the groom in the discussion and then pretty much they'll say how much for the woman and uh, or how much for the girl because generally speaking she would be much younger than the groom maybe 12 or 13 years old so it's like how, how much and then they would agree a price and then the marriage would take place and so all of the power lies with the men um, it's really a financial transaction and that's really shocking for us to understand that in our culture because marriage is more like, you know, it's, it's like Disney films and, uh, you know, just rom-coms and it's all about love and all of that. Whereas actually there's very little that had to do with love in marriage at that time. In fact, really only if you were dealing with people who are extraordinarily wealthy and powerful did love have anything to do with it. So... Um, uh, it's shocking for us, but it's totally normal for them. So when they're hearing this read aloud in a church context, they're not thinking, uh, you know, oh, th th this is all outrageous or, or anything. They, they know what marriage is. And it's a little bit like trying to argue with gravity, right? That, you know, it's just like, it's just, it's just there. And their, their, co their context, what they knew of marriage, was just what everyone was used to and no one expected to change. In fact, marriage with that kind of men having all the power thing was regarded as the kind of central pillar of the fabric of society. And, and it was like, if this breaks down, if the women get too big for their boots, then the whole lot crumbles. And so let's just make sure that we keep women in their box. And the way that they reinforced that men having all the power thing was by writing these things called household codes. And that you can read loads of different household codes, and they all say roughly the same thing. They speak to the men only, and they say to the men, um, listen, you need to, to make sure that you rule over all the women and all the children and all of the slaves and keep them all in their box. And they always include those three kind of groups, the women, the children, and the slaves. And they just address the men, just make sure you have all the power. And so you can read, for example, Aristotle in the 4th century BC, and you get exactly that thing, the, you know, speaking to the men, men are superior, you know, uh, and so therefore they should rule over the women, the children, and the slaves, and then society will be okay. But you can also see that in Jewish writing. So Josephus or Philo, there are these household codes, very similar. And they were all the equivalent of the monologue at the start of the 18. You know, like, we all know how this is going to go. It doesn't matter which one you read. It's like, we, we, just, it's, we, we know how this ends. Um, and so... Uh, you, you know, they were, they, were, they were not surprised by, by reading any household code until this one. And this one is dramatically different from all of the others. It would have been like listening to it and, you know, uh, if you have a problem and no one else can help, maybe you should call for Batman and Robin. It's like, what? That's not how this is supposed to end. It's supposed to end with the A-team. And this one's dramatically different in three different ways. So the first thing is, it's dramatically different because it addresses the women first. All the other household codes are, are written to address the men. And at no point do they address the women. The women just do what they're told normally. But in this passage, Paul appeals to their dignity and he gives them absolute freedom and absolute choice. And in verse 22, he says, I, I want you to submit to your husbands how, as you do to the Lord... In other words, you, you, at a particular point in your life, you decided that you may have all these dreams and desires and ambitions for your life, but you say, not my will, God, 
that your will be done in my life. And in the same way, make that same choice for your husband. I, not my will, but I'm going to yield my ambitions, my hopes, my dreams for my life. I'm going to yield those to my husband. I'm going to prefer him. I'm going to defer to him. And the point is that there's such dignity being given to the women in that moment. Right? It was like, well, in one sense, they didn't have a choice, but he's saying, no, no, I, I'm writing to you specifically, even though none of the other household codes do. And I'm saying, I want you to choose to yield and submit to your husband, even though the end result is the same. It's dignity being given. The second thing is that the instructions to the husbands are dramatically different. Whereas all the other codes say, um, listen, you need to understand that women and children and slaves are inferior species. So it's important for all of society that you rule over them and keep them under firm control. Instead, in verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that she can be radiant without stain or blemish but holy and blameless. I mean, what? Give yourself up for your wife. Why the heck would you do that? It's so important that we, that we don't miss this. If anything, the language in, uh, directed towards the husband is even stronger than the, the language directed towards the wife. What, women, yield, submit, uh, give way to your husband. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. Like if you imagine that I'm a dead body right now, right? It's me just lying here dead. How much control over Taryn do I have right now? How, you know, how, how able am I to manipulate her or control her or just make her do what I want her to do? <laughs> it depends on my will. Yeah, very good. Uh, not very much is the answer. Not very much. I'm supposed to die to my dreams, my ambitions, my hopes, my beliefs, and I'm supposed to yield all of that and submit all of that to my wife. Just would have been absolutely shocking to hear that read aloud in the context of a church in the first century. So it's dramatically different. So this is not about, the, this document in a sense is not about reinforcing power, it's about the relinquishing of power in marriage, one to another. And thirdly, the, the other way it's different is that the foundation of a solid marriage is not the, you know, the quality of the financial transaction. It's like, well, you know, I, I gave a good, couple of grand there so that's got me you know that's our marriage sealed that's done it's like no 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 the foundation of a secure marriage and secure family life is love it's love verse 25 husbands love your wives verse 28 husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies verse 33 each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself in that culture um, a wife was for making babies and for look, keeping the house, looking after the house. If you wanted love, you looked somewhere else for that. And he said, no, no, no. In a Christian household, the marriage is going to be firmly based on love. In other words, this document, which is so shocking uh, to the first century audience, is, is saying, just imagine, church, a totally different kind of marriage, a massively different kind of household, a different kind of family. In other words, a different kind of society that has love right at the heart of it instead of male dominance, male power, or money. 
So the historical context is really important. Okay, the next one, the wider biblical context. So what is the, this is quite dense, isn't it? You all look awake, so I'll just keep going. So the wider, the, what does the whole Bible have to say about marriage and about um, uh, authority and power in the context of marriage? Um, often the mistake that we make when we come across difficult passages is that we um, start with the tricky passage, we try to understand it, and then we go wider and look at the rest of the Bible. But actually, what we should always do when we come to difficult passages is look at what does the whole Bible say that's easy to understand, and then that will help us to understand the difficult passage. And so we're just going to look at a couple of passages um, just to help us to do that. The first thing is the creation story. So we would want to know, what, is, what, what did God originally intend for man and woman and the way that they related to one another? And so in Genesis 1 to 3, we find the creation story. In Genesis chapter 1, we see men and women created together, equally the pinnacle of creation. There's absolutely no sense that men were superior to women uh, or that they had authority over women. They were made equal. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, they were made in the image of God together. They both bore the image of God. So that's in Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there's something about men and women and the way that they relate to one another that bears God's image together. There's no sense that men are more important in that. The second thing is that God's blessing is given to both men and women. That's in verse 28 of chapter 1. And then the third thing is God gives them both equal authority over creation. That's in 128. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And so what you have at the very beginning of creation is absolute equality and partnership, and mutuality, and unity. There's absolutely no sense that Adam is given more authority than Eve, or that he's given authority over Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a more detailed account of the creation, and there are a couple of moments that have created some confusion uh, when it comes to understanding um, marriage. Uh, one of them is in chapter 2, verse 18, where it, it says, The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And at, some, at face value, that maybe implies a bit of servitude. Like, oh, poor old Adam. He's so useless by himself. He needs, you know, a little helper just to come along and pick up the socks behind him. And just, you know, um, just, he's not good with a duster, bless him. So he just needs a little helper just to help around the house. But actually, that word helper doesn't imply anything like that. And in fact... The, right the way throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, the word that's translated as helper is almost always used of someone of equal or higher power and authority. And in fact, it's, that word helper is often used of God himself. So Psalm 33, verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Same word. So it's not like, oh, we just need someone who, you know, is handy with the, you know, cleaning the silverware and um, stacking the dishwasher. The, the word helper is really not that. It's something much, much more powerful than that. Um, uh, other people have said, well, 
Listen, Adam was created first and then Eve. And so that's why he has more authority or more power than the woman. Now, the problem with that is that that doesn't follow the, the flow of the Genesis account. So you think about it. In Genesis, what's created first is, you know, the earth and then the sky and the um, sea and um, land. And um, then there were like fish and birds and they're all good, right? That's good. And, and then uh, cattle and kangaroos and mongoose, mongoose, mongoose. Mongooses? I don't know. Anyway, uh, you know, all those kind of animals and all of that, and that's all good. And then the thing that's created last is very good. So the problem is, if you want to start looking at, well, you know, there's a particular order of things, it wasn't actually the men that were created at the pinnacle. So we're just going to just leave that there. Um, It was, yeah, anyway. So in... In fact, you don't see a shift in the equality between men and women until when? Until the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when God finds them hiding in the bushes in the garden and their sin is revealed and they're expelled from paradise and the consequences of their rebellion is spelled out to them. And, you know, so for the men, it's like you're gonna, your work is going to be much harder than it was before. For the women, it's going to be like giving birth it will be really, really painful from now on. And then in chapter 3, verse 16 of Genesis, it says, um, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so it's not God's original intention that there should be a, a power imbalance between men and women. It's as a result of the fall. It's the consequences of sin. And actually, to be honest with you, when you start to look at hashtag me too and all of that stuff, you realize that that is absolutely evident in our world today. That wherever sin is corrupting the relationships between men and women, there's, there's a pow- an inappropriate use and abuse of power between, you know, from the men towards the women that is shocking and absolutely not what was ever intended. Um, so, so I think that the, the Genesis account of creation helps us to really understand what was it supposed to be like. And then um, we could look at loads of other passages of Scripture. And in fact, when I did this talk last week in Ellen, I added some more, but uh, there's no time for it. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, you could just write down if you're making notes. 1 Timothy 5, 14 is a helpful one to look at. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's where Paul is addressing... Um, Sexual relations between uh, a man and his wife. Uh, Sorry, kids. And um, from verse 2, from verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Listen to this bit. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do you see the absolute symmetry of that passage? You know, uh, and, and it would have been absolutely shocking in that culture. Can you imagine it? In that patriarchal culture where the men had all the power, for a husband to hear, you don't even have authority over your own body, let alone your wife's. You're to yield that, and your wife has authority over your body in the same way as you have authority over hers. 
Okay, so that's the um, wider biblical context. Now let's come into the closer uh, biblical context and um, just try to understand where this passage fits in the general flow of the, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. The first thing to notice is that this, um, all this language about submission and submitting um, in the passage that we read is in the same sentence in the original Greek as verse 18. So even though in lots of our Bibles this is all broken up into different passages, actually it's all one sentence. So, uh, it's actually quite shocking the way that in um, uh, the older versions of the NIV even, and some of you might have those here today, verse 21 and 22 are in different paragraphs. You know, submit to one another is in a different pa paragraph from wives submit to your husbands, even though in the original Greek it's exactly the same sentence. And it all comes, uh, starts at verse 18, which, which is a, a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the, the structure of the sentence is this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and lots of exciting things will happen. Right? So be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another, singing and making music in your hearts, giving thanks, submitting to one another. So they're all different, in a sense, fruits of the Spirit's work in your life. Speaking, singing, giving thanks, submitting. The whole thrust is, um, uh, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, your family life will know it. What a sweet thing. The second thing to notice is that verse 21, submit to one another, is in the same sentence as verse 22, wives submit to your husbands. And in fact, if, you, if you're looking at the text in front of you, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. That word submit in the second sentence isn't even there in the language. It's taking submit from the um, sentence before. So actually what it actually says is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so the big question is, don't worry if that's kind of flown over you, um, it's fine. But the big question is this. Is he saying, option one, um, submit to one another, mainly I'm speaking to you women. Like, you know, really, actually men, you could just stand down now because actually really it's the women. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Or, no, um, my argument would be probably not. Actually what he's saying is, um, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For example, women, submit to your husbands. And then later on, here's another example. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. This is all, this whole paragraph is about what does submission to one another look like? Um, yielding yourselves voluntarily in love to your spouse is how you live in obedience to the command at the start of the paragraph to submit to yourselves to one another. And we do all of that, laying down our lives, yielding to one another, that mutuality, that symmetry of just uh, you know, wanting to be a blessing, deferring to my spouse, is all as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. God in his power and in his kindness helps us to build the kind of marriage that he is calling us to live in. Now, we're nearly there, but you might want to say, well, hang on a minute. In verse 23, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Um, that seems to be a little bit clearer, doesn't it? And so that's where we come on to the linguistic context. 
Um, here's the thing. When we read the word head or hear the word head, we hear some kind of implied leadership or authority, don't we? So you think about the head teacher or the head of drilling or the head coach or whatever. We think that implies some kind of leadership. But almost certainly in Greco-Roman culture uh, in Ephesus, you know, 1900 years ago, that absolutely would never have crossed their minds that that was um, implied, that there was any kind of leadership implied. Um, in fact, the most exhaustive ancient Greek dictionary lists 48 different translations of the word kephale, which is, is the word head here, and none of them mean leader or authority or control or anything that is like that. I was reading one explanation. I don't know whether this is helpful. But in our culture, because we know about physiology and all of that, we understand that our brains are like the control center for our body, right? So our brains tell the rest of our bodies what to do. But in that culture, they didn't necessarily have an understanding that the brain was the thing that did that. They, maybe their suspicion was it was about 18 inches further down in the heart. The heart was what decided what happened with the rest of us. Um, and so the question becomes, what would they originally, when they heard Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife, what would they have heard? What would they have believed that that represented? And um, according to all of the scholarship that I've been reading over the last few weeks, the most likely answer is the source of life or the life source. If you think about what your head accomplishes in your life, you put food into your head and it nourishes the whole of your body. You put water into your face uh, and the, you know, the, your, the thirst in your whole body is quenched. You breathe air in through your head and your lungs fill with air, all of the oxygen that your whole body needs. You see, your head is like the source of everything that gives life to the rest of your body. And so um, it makes sense then that in the ancient Greek world, if you were to hear the word head, your first thought would be that it might be that the head is the source of life. Without your head, you have no life. From your head comes all the nourishment and sustenance that your whole body needs. And that's the image that was a common use of the Greek word kephale, head, in the ancient world. And actually, that makes perfect sense um, then to say that Christ is the head of the church because from Christ comes all of the life that we know in the church. Um, and actually, if you were to look in the New Testament for a whole bunch of other places, because it's quite common in the New Testament to read the words, Christ is the head of the church. If you were to look at the context of each one of those and ask yourself, does leadership make more sense as, or does source of life make more sense? Actually, um, a source of life makes way more sense. So, for example, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says this, They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body supported and held together grows. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, which we looked at a few weeks ago, From the head, that is Christ, the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. And so when Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, um, according to all of the scholars that I've been reading, it seems like what he's saying is that one aspect of their responsibility is to be the source of life for his wife. That he should see his role in life as bringing life 
to his wife, building her up, encouraging her, helping her to be all that she could and should become. And when you put all of that together, I think what this passage is saying, and like I said, if you've come to a different interpretation in your marriage, please, you, you stay, uh, you know, you must do whatever you feel is right before the Lord. But I think where, where we land is this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where it starts. And which will lead to, amongst all kinds of other glorious things, husbands and wives submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in love. For example, wives, you should choose, even though you don't have a choice, you should choose to yield your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions to your husband. And you should choose to do that because your husband is a source of life to you. And he'll help you to become all that you could be. And as another example of mutual submission, husbands, lay down your lives, your whole lives for your wife in the same way that Jesus laid down his life for the church. So that your wife can become radiant and without stain or wrinkle. And to me, that's just a glorious picture of mutual, mutual yielding, mutual concession, mutual deference, mutual sacrifice, one for another. And let me just finish um, uh, by just trying to land that in our lives in some kind of a way. Like, what do we actually do with this stuff? Because I'd hate for us all to go, oh, that was interesting, or that was not interesting, but what the heck do I do with that? So uh, four, four quick questions, really. Um, the first one is this. Um, is Jesus a model for our relationships? So um, throughout this passage, weaved all the way through, is Paul saying, you know, as, as Christ does, or like Jesus, or this is like Jesus, all the way through the whole passage, it's like pointing towards Jesus, because what he's saying is, um, Jesus is the model for everything. Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself even to death on a cross. So doing any kind of relationships well, not just marriage relationships, but any kind of relationships well, is surely about living a life of humility and service and sacrifice one to another. And so my question is, how's that going for you in your workplace, at the school gate, with your grandparents or your kids? How's it going just laying down your life for the people around you? Jesus is the model for all of our relationships. Number two, um, Jesus really, really loves his church. Having built this amazing picture of intimacy and unity between the husband and the wife, Paul then says in verse 32, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so what he's saying is the best marriage is really like a living parable or a living illustration of Jesus' affection for his church, his bride. And so the question really is, if that's how Jesus feels towards the church, his bride, do I need to in any way realign my own affections towards the church? Uh, number three, am I yielding to and preferring my spouse? Like not in, I think most of us, you know, if we saw a, a, a bus just about to, you know, take out our spouse, most of us would like jump in the way or something like that. You know, that's... That, probably a given but actually what about in you know laying down our life for us lives for our spice in uh, 
in smaller ways, like stacking the dishwasher, taxiing the kids around, um, you know, do it, paying, all, paying all the bills, or whatever thing that you really hate doing is. Am I deferring to my spouse? And the last thing is, and I'll finish with this, am I stoking the fires of love in my marriage? Do you know, it just occurs to me, just to finish with, that, that so many t- times it's so easy for marriage to become a bit like a business partnership. You know, where the day, the day is filled with things that we need to tick off our to-do list. Like, okay, I've got to, you know, pay the electricity bill, and I've got to take the kid to, you know, gym class, and I've got to um, uh, go to that meeting at church, and I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and I've got to do the other. And then you get, you, it's like you get to the end of the day, yes, nailed it, boom, ticked off all the things off the list, congratulations, well done, partner. It's like, mm, yeah, but that's not really the heart of it, is it? The heart of marriage is love. And so it just seems appropriate to finish with that. You know, how's it going? Are you stoking the fires of love? Are you reminding one another why you married each other in the first place? Why don't we stand?